Welcome back to the no. Welcome, welcome to the linen suit and plastic type. No, I want to enunciate more. Welcome, welcome to the linen suit and plastic tie podcast. This is the podcast where we work to dissect and analyze the epic, the amazing, the suspendous, the cool power of storytelling and learn how to harness that power to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorf. And I'm Kevin. You know, Kev, um, something I'm very proud of myself on is that I consume a very diverse set of storytelling. The podcast, of course, because we meet so many cool storytellers and I watch so much TV. <laughs> I watch everything, cartoons, this adult I watch is every TV show. I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of movies. Um, in my house right now, I have comic books. I have graphic novels. I have scripts. I have uh, records. Um, novels, fiction and non-fiction. I think it's something I work hard at and something that is important to me. Like, I know we've talked about before, whenever I feel like there's a gap in my diversity of storytelling, like games. So I started using the Oculus more. Or like, uh, one thing we talked about a lot is that I didn't read a lot of non-fiction books. So, no, sorry. I didn't, I always confuse those. I didn't, I don't read a lot of fiction books. And then through the podcast, I started and even out of the podcast, I'm reading more fiction. And now uh, two places I'm trying to expand in is one, Webtoons. I've read a few, but Webtoons is this version of web online comic books that I'm trying to do more of. And horror, I've never done a lot of that, and I'm trying to do more of that too. The reason I say this, the reason I, I think diversity of storytelling is so important is because one thing that bothers me sometimes is when people blanketly hate things for one bad experience. So it's like when people say, oh, I hate seafood. And I'm like, well, seafood's a, a huge amount of food. Like that's salmon, which I'm allergic to, but that was a weird first example. But that's like, that's fish, that's shrimp, that's oysters, that's uh, lobster. That's, I mean, there's so many different aspects of seafood, right? And there's people listening, well, I hate seafood. And I'm like, that's fine, that's fine. Uh, but that's just an example. And so when people are like, oh, I don't read comic books. Comic books are for children. I'm like, well, I can name to you six comic books that are full of stuff children should not be reading. Or a bunch of comic books that get into philosophy and make me think twice. I mean, and the same thing with cartoons like Rick and Morty and like uh, BoJack Horseman. So I think diversity of storytelling diversity of stories you consume is so important to allow you to experience more of the world and allow you to connect with people you never thought you connect to and allow you to experience elements of the world that you wouldn't in your day-to-day life so this is my uh, psa and my goal for everyone listening is ask yourselves is there any types of storytelling is there any genres or any types of books whether it be comic books or games or graphic novels and say maybe i'll give that another chance because what you'll find more often is that especially these some of these genres there's so many different artists in them more often than not you're more likely to find something you love within it it's important to have an open mind it allows you to experience things you never thought you'd experience because it's a form of the world you shut off 
yeah, and uh, try more seafood, people. There's a great variety. <laughs> it's great. If you didn't like one type of seafood, you might like another. Anyways, we're gonna talk about a really u- cool and unique storyteller today, and a version of storytelling that we have never talked about before. Kev, who are we talking to today? Ooh, yes. Today we are talking to Lydia Finette. Lydia is a global thought leader and ambassador of Christie's Auction House.、Uh, throughout her career as Christie's lead charity auctioneer, Lydia has led auctions for over 600 organizations, raising over half a billion dollars of nonprofit globally. Huge. And we're going to talk to Lydia about. You know how storytelling is impactful for auctioning, which is a, a really cool profession that neither of us really knew much about. So this is a fun conversation, and we also get to talk to Lydia about、uh, her new book, "Claim Your Confidence, Unlock Your Superpower, and Create the Life You Want." So let's get、yeah. into it. Let's find out what storytelling skills we can learn from an auctioneer. All right,、uh, Lydia. To start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Absolutely. So my name is, as you said, Lydia Finette. I grew up in the Deep South in Louisiana, and I have lived in New York City for 21 years. So I'm kind of a hybrid of all of America. I like to think, or at least the East Side of America.、Um, I. Became an auctioneer for Christie's Auction House when I was 24 years old, and that really has been the base of my story, especially as it pertains to my career. It has given me a launching pad for so many more things because of the lessons that I've learned as an auctioneer. So I have added many titles to that sense. I'm an auctioneer. I'm an author. My second book is coming out. Next week, and I have a podcast called "Claim Your Confidence," which is the same name as the book. And I'm also a professional speaker. So, all of the things tangentially touch auctioneering because they are all things that I've learned from being on stage night after night since I was 24. But that's really that's my adult story. We love asking that question because we like、uh, letting everyone frame their own story and hearing the things they use, the words they use to describe themselves, the labels, the the touch points, the people. I find it really interesting that you kind of pivot your career off this auctioneer title, this this level of auctioneering, and this idea of you as an auctioneer and how that's kind of framed your life. And I think through the writings and、uh, recordings we've seen of you, it's really interesting how that experience shaped everything you've done since. So, can you tell us a little bit more about how that happened, and overall, kind of define what auctioneer means to you? Absolutely. I read an article when I was in college, my junior year in college, about an auction house in New York City called Christie's. The article was about Princess Diana's dresses being sold at a place called Christie's, and I didn't know anything about the auction world at the time. I really thought that art was something that was in a museum. I had never given any thought to the business side of art, and this article just captivated me. You know, there's something about the auction world, and I can say this having worked in it for over 20 years. There is something captivating about it. It's a very glamorous world on the outside. On the inside, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of late hours, but it's also a, you're surrounded by people who have a deep love and learning. 
So I started interning there in college after stalking the internship coordinator, because again, I didn't have any connections to get in. So it was just straight up cold calling. And she finally relented after about two straight weeks of me calling because there was no caller ID at that point. So she did not know who was calling every morning, but it was me asking the same question she told me no to for almost two straight weeks. And it was such an amazing moment walking in those doors because I fell in love with it. And I was at that point, literally wiping tables and shredding paper and, you know, basically recoding departments that had been renamed on endless reams of paper, you know? And so there was really nothing glamorous about my job at all, but it seemed very glamorous. The world seemed glamorous and I really fell in love with it. And because I started in events, when I went back after my, my first internship to get a, a job there, I started in the events department and we used to accompany the auctioneers to all of the big charity galas in New York City. And charity auctioneering is very different than art auctioneering. Art auctioneering is standing on stage when people are coming in to buy art. Charity auctioneering is getting up on stage when nobody wants to buy what you're selling and trying to convince them to sell it and hoping that the alcohol that they've had is going to push them a little bit further than they would have otherwise. And that was really where it started. I saw the auctioneers on stage about three years in. They changed the tryout rules so you didn't have to be an officer in the company. And I went to tryouts with about 20 people and there ended up being four of us at the end of it. And I was still standing. I was the only woman. And I was solidly probably 10 years younger than the guys I trained with that day. And it just became this really amazing opportunity for growth that I've always found. I talk a lot about confidence. My second book is about confidence that it's by testing ourselves that we get confident. It's not that we're born with confidence. It's that you have to get outside of the box of what you think is normal or easy time and time again, because then you learn how much you're capable of. And that's what auctioneering really became for me. You know, it was just getting on stage night after night and really not doing a great job. I don't, I don't think anybody who saw me the first year I was an auctioneer would say I did a great job, but I learned over many, many years and many, many auctions how to control a crowd, how to captivate a room, when to throw in the jokes, like when to let it go, you know, and all of those things over time have made my career into this just incredible, incredible ride. You know, I've, I've been all over the world in this job. I've seen so many things, but again, kind of going back to that point of growth and always wanting to grow, I also had gotten to the point where I feel like I hadn't mastered it because I don't think you ever really master any skill. You can always improve, but I feel like I can get on any stage anywhere in the world and I don't get nervous anymore. And so to me, there was time for a new challenge. And that came when I told the New York Times that I was writing a book that I wasn't writing. Um, but then I ended up selling the book based on a chapter that I threw together to make sure that I had something when the New York Times article spurred all these publishing houses reaching out. And then all of a sudden there was that fear, right? Like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to do this. And then fighting through the fear and getting it done. And that ultimately became my first book. So I feel like that's been my life of just throwing myself into situations where I'm like, oh my God, why did I do this? Why did I do this? And then on the other side being like, that was incredible. Even if I bombed, like at least I tried. Uh, I want to pivot back a little bit to charity auctioneer because uh, yeah. that's fascinating. And when I'm picturing auctioneer, I am picturing pawn stars and like storage wars and the person like rattling out fast words. Um, Tell me why that's wrong and uh, tell me if you have an auctioneer voice. Um, well, first and foremost, that is not the only type of auctioneering. It can be done <laughs> in a more elegant fashion, just so you know. That is definitely, and by the way, when I say that, I will also give 
huge shout out to anybody who knows how to chant because I have no idea. That's not the type of auctioneering that I've ever done, but it is an unbelievable skill. And I became the principal auctioneer for a car company last August. And when I went in to do one of my first, actually, I guess it was my second sale with them. They had another auctioneer and there was a big memorabilia section, which you have to get through really quickly. So they said, oh, we're going to put Brent up first. And I had just arrived and he got up and he went into the straight like, and I turned to the team and I was like, yeah, I just want to be really clear. I cannot do that. <laughs> they were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's fine. It's um, so no, I do have an auctioneering voice. Mine is more like, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lydia Finette, and I am so delighted to be here with you today. Thank you so much for attending this event. We are going to have a fabulous time if you bid. Otherwise, we will be here all night. So let's get started. <laughs> dive in lot number one. So I speed it up, but it's not a chance for sure. Okay. Okay. It's fair. I, I just want to table state that because I'm sure many people are uh, wondering that. Um, so with with charity auctioneering, um, I think the difference you described is really interesting because you're like, well, no one wants to buy charity auctioneering. <laughs> like, uh, I have to get up there. I have to commence. I have to sell. You have to tell stories. Like that's a storytelling element in itself. You're up there. You're selling the. You're selling on the spot, and so much of sales is storytelling. Can you talk to us about that connection a little bit more? How how do you approach that? How do you yes. build that skill? Talk to us about that connection. Yeah, I mean, it was probably the most important part of the shift that I had between being an, being trained as an art auctioneer and then taking charity auctions because I would I would always apply the rules of art auctioneering when people were sitting quietly and you were using increments and everything was very orderly. And because I kept doing that during charity auctions where people were not paying attention and they were drinking and it was a loud room, people just didn't pay attention. And I, what I learned about halfway into my charity auctioneering career was the storytelling is the piece that keeps people paying attention, even if they're not going to bid. So if you have a good story, that's going to make them think like, oh, well, maybe I could get that. It's also about the power of suggestion. So last night I was on stage. I took Savannah Guthrie from the Today Show and trained her to be an auctioneer. And then last night we were on stage together at the plaza and she was sort of doing all of the things that I had taught her to do. And one of them was, in fact telling the lot as a story. So we were talking about this dream dinner party in New York and Brooklyn Heights at this place called uh, Clover Hill that Charlie Mitchell, who's the first black American Michelin star chef has. And apparently I have not been, but it is an unbelievable place. You cannot get in and all of those things. So we are given the lots as a series of bullet points. Four people can go to dinner, Brooklyn Heights restaurant, Clover Hill, you know, all of the salient points. What you need to do in New York City or on any stage in the world is make that into a story. So, for instance, what I suggested to her is, look, let's start this out as, ladies and gentlemen, we live in New York City. What is the one thing that everybody loves more than anything else? A place you can't get into, right? So you're sort of turning it on their head and everyone in the audience is like, oh, yeah, I like a place I can't into, right? So then you're sort of like, well, I have a reservation you will never be able to get except for here tonight. And then you can go into the details. But so that's what I always try to do Try to do with the lots on stage. And again, going back to what I said about the power of suggestion, that can pertain to anything. You know, it might be someone donates a ski house and they'll say, one week at our ski house, you know, let's call it in Vermont. And I will call them immediately and say, okay, is it a ski house or is it just a house in Vermont that you they could use year round? And if they say year round, I'm like, great, I'm never going to skate. I'm never going to say a ski house because that will immediately isolate anyone who doesn't ski. So you offer up all the suggestions, like a romantic getaway, a ski vacation, a place to go leaf peeping. You see what I'm saying? So that's what I mean by storytelling. It's a small home is cozy. 
that type of sales. Exactly. Exactly. I'm like, you want to go to, I'll say something about, you know, if I'm selling a beach trip right in the middle of winter in New York, I'm like, Hey guys, remember last year when there was a hundred feet of snow? Do you want to be here in February? No, you don't. So here's the trip to Mexico. You know, you're just sort of like giving them ideas of things they might do. Mm-hmm. Paint the picture, bring them along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you did talk about the rough start that you had as an auctioneer. You entered this career very early on. Um, and a lot of the people, you know, already working or training with you even are much, much older and more experienced. So I want to get into that a little bit as well. What does, you know, the imposter syndrome or what did the imposter syndrome look like for someone whose job is to command a room? I know, right? You know, it was funny. I feel like at the beginning, the imposter syndrome was always for me on the walking into the room with people, not necessarily on the stage. I, again, I think a lot of that's learned over time, but the imposter syndrome really hit at the beginning because I would get so many comments about being a woman or being young. Those were sort of the two, like I remember being moved to the kids table more than once or not having a seat or people saying to me, no, but I'm looking for the real auctioneer, not you, like the, not the person who stands on stage next to the auctioneer. And I was like, no, they, I am still the auctioneer. You can say that as many ways as you want, but the bottom line is it's still going to be me. Um, And I think that that just fed into it, you know, and add to that, anytime I got off stage, I mean, people always say, it's a comment you will hear every single time. It doesn't matter how well an auction goes. Oof, that was a tough crowd. And I would internalize that to think like, oh, I didn't do a good job. When in fact, they just meant like it was a tough crowd because it is a tough crowd. You're a charity auctioneer. There are a thousand people and they're all talking. So inherently there's always a tough crowd. Um, I think I just sort of took all of that on and it just became part of this thing that I would try to please everyone. You know, I was always overly prepared. You know, a lot of my colleagues, my male colleagues would get absolutely hammered before they got on stage to be on stage for a charity auctioneer because it wasn't an art auction. So they were like, oh, you know, whatever, I'll have five glasses of wine and get on stage. I've never touched a glass of wine before I got on stage because all I could think of, it was like, what would someone say if I got up on stage and I was drunk? Like there's something about like a young drunk woman being on stage. That's not acceptable. But any of my guy friends, I mean, like one of the like lead auctioneers from Christie's used to have a tumbler of whiskey, like as he was walking into the sale room to call his nerves. But I never felt like I could do that because I just felt like the optics on that were completely different. So I think all of those things just fed into my imposter syndrome. Some of it definitely in my head, some of it said out loud. So I knew that I wasn't the only one thinking it, but Ultimately, what's happened over the past two decades is I'm confident in what I do. I know I'm one of the best at what I do. And therefore, I don't really think any more about anyone else or what they think about my performance. If I get off stage and it didn't go well, I already know it. I know exactly what went wrong. I know exactly what I can correct the next time. And I think to myself, like, okay, so next time if I lose the crowd, what should I do? Like, what for my toolbox of 20 years of, you know, 20,000 hours of being on stage should I pull out? Um, but it's like anything, you know, you practice and you practice and you keep improving. And over time, you learn the shortcuts and you get better. I didn't realize there was such an uh, underlying gender discrimination and gap in the auctioneering world. But I think that makes sense um, yeah. um, if you really think about it, because I think something you've been talking about in this uh, conversation is such an interesting theme is that auctioneers really make all the difference in charity auctions, right? This is something where you need to push above the value. This is not necessarily going to be resale to appreciate over years. There's experiences, whatnot. 
you're pushing up the value and with the story of, oh, well, it's going to charity. So that's mm-hmm. one really, really key point here is that auctioneers make that value difference. So that's where you see the value of a good versus new or not so good auctioneer. But in, going back to the gender discrimination point was that because of how this works at the highest levels and because of how heritage-based these organizations are and how the money and wealth is distributed in certain types and demographics of people, you can see how that can lead to gender discrimination. And I think that's so fascinating. I mean, obviously, also, I mean, terrible. Think, think about the words that you use to describe an auctioneer. You know, I, I say all the time, like, I am not what people think of when they think of an auctioneer, you know commanding, in charge, like on state, all of these words as I use them. And even in my own mind, when I got to Christie's, there were very few female auctioneers and they never took the top sales. They were always sort of, you know, there was one amazing auctioneer in LA named Andrea Fujinski, but I was based in New York. And so I rarely saw her and there was no social media at that point. So you weren't watching other people do what they do. Um, You know, I think in the past five years, there have been real strides to get females on the podium in the art auctioneering world. And I will say without a doubt, the charity auctioneering world, I taught the class at Christie's for, I mean, probably 10, 12 years. And when I first started, it was all guys coming in. And then by the end, it was just as many women, if not sometimes all women. And I can say without any question, that was because they saw me going out to take charity auctions. Like when, as soon as social media started, I would get these young women being like, oh my God, I want to be an auctioneer. They would just text me or DM me, you know, from internally at Christie's or even externally, there would be women who come up and be like, how do I do what you do? Um, because again, I mean, we all know this, we talk about this endlessly, but you, you see something and you think you can do it, you know, and whether or not you have the skills, just being able to see someone do it makes you think that there's a chance that you could be able to do it. And that has been an incredible part of my job is, is sort of blazing that path and seeing young women and hearing them say like, I could do this too. But I mean, as, as recently as 2018, I was told that after, and I, I was year, I mean, it's gotta be like 18, 19 at Christie's. I'd been the lead charity auctioneer for over a decade at that point. And I had this museum in, in Munich. They called Christie's and the head of the Munich office to try to get an auctioneer. And they called me from the Munich office to say like, we would love for you to come. You know, we know you're the top auctioneer, especially for charities. And so I was like, oh yeah, that'd be great. And then I didn't hear from them for, for a while. And then she finally called me and was like, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but they they told us they're worried you're not going to be able to handle the crowd. And I was sort of like, what? I mean, I take auctions every single night in New York. And let me just tell you, no one in New York <laughs> cares if you're on stage. They will talk the whole time. They have no, you know, everybody here goes to galas a lot. They don't think anything of talking right over the auctioneer. I was like, I was trained in a place with no mercy. Like if anyone can command a crowd, it is me. And I think I earlier that week been on stage with Bruce Springsteen at Madison Square Garden in front of 7,000 people. And I was like, explain to me what I can't do. I am confused. And, you know, they ended up coming to meet me. They flew over from Munich to meet me and we had a great meeting and they were like, oh, okay, we, we feel good about this now. And I was like, this is crazy. I can't believe, I can't believe you're articulating this to me, number one, but two, that we're having this conversation. And, you know, I got over there and I'll never forget, I, the auction went so well and I finished and I was getting off stage and the head of the museum said, Lydia, the only thing we can ask is, will you come back next year? And I smiled and I said, yeah, we'll see. Like, I, that is not a hard yes for me after this. We will see. 
Um, but I did go back next year and I loved their team at the end of it. But I still, in 2018, I had I'd finished writing The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. It hadn't been launched yet, but I will never forget that as long as I live because just hearing somebody say that out loud, I'm like, you don't even seem concerned that you've just said that. You bring up so many really good points here about one of the things kind of in story time to touch upon here is the words you were using, like commanding in charge. And I think you 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 referenced it, but just to fully say it, it's um, those are very gendered words for some reason totally. in greater history. They are related to men with commanding yes. in charge, things like that. And when we look at language and we look at the ways we use words, very often these words, when you even try to apply them to women, can come off negatively, like commanding yeah. in charge and things like that. And it's not just the stories we tell ourselves, but when we phrase job descriptions, when we talk about jobs, mm-hmm. when we talk about the, and when we, we have to be very deliberate in the words we use so that we are not perpetuating this. So mm-hmm. like even the words commanding in charge, it's it's tough because part of me wants to be like, let's replace them. But a part of me wants to say, oh, let's just talk about the more positively with women. Do you find that in job descriptions and when you're talking about auctioneering, trying to use your words in a way that makes it more inclusive? And how have you struggled with that? That's such an interesting question. You know, I, when I wrote my book, my first book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, the tagline underneath is command an audience and sell your way to success. Mm-hmm. And when I sold my second book, which is called Claim Your Confidence, I told a friend of mine the title and she said, oh, I love that title. She's like, I loved The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. She's like, but to be honest, not everybody wants to be powerful, but everybody wants mm-hmm. to be confident. I always thought that comment was really interesting because as if a woman couldn't take the mantle of powerful or command. And I think you're right. It is it is a puzzle, as my, my friend Genevieve often says, it's a puzzle to be a woman because the word confidence can be good or bad, depending on how someone's using it. Like, oh, she's very confident, isn't she? Or she's very confident, right? You know, confidence in a guy is just confidence. In a woman, it can be it can be used in a very negative way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think, and I think it just be, it's about being more intentional, like how we use words, how we talk about words, degendering words, trying to use words that are less gendered. And, and I know how political and weird this can get, but I think it's just about understanding that we are limiting ourselves in these stories. Like if we are telling stories about a job and we're limiting to one group of people, you are, there's so much talent that gets lost. And so much growth that totally. gets lost. So I think the stories we tell when we're recruiting and the stories we tell about certain roles and the stories we tell about potential are so important that we take the time to be intentional about it. Yeah. And I think in addition to that, you know, the other thing that we should all always think about whenever we're describing something or thinking about something is that the same job can be done differently and it's not bad or good. It's just different. You know, things in life don't have to be black or white. They can just be completely different. And I do think that that's something that my mother has said ever since I was little. She's British. And, you know, she would say a word and we'd all be like, that's so weird that you say, you know, jelly instead of jam. And she would always say, it's not good or bad. It's just different. And that's what I've always said, even as an auctioneer. I don't take auctions like the guy auctioneers that I trained with at all. We have a very different style. I grew up in the South. It's all about, you know, you catch more bees with honey. You will never hear me say anything negative about anyone from stage. I, I use charm like a shield and a sword in equal measure. And the guys can't do that in the same way. And they will admit that. They're like, they go after head to head with a lot of the other guys in the audience. I would never do that. 
you know, my approach is so much more soft sell and just as effective. So as I always say, it's not good or bad, it's just different. And that can be done however you want, in whatever language you want to do that. And I think you can use those adjectives for good or for bad, but I wish we would use them for good to describe people and not be like, she's commanding and have that be a negative, but rather like she's commanding and have that be a positive. Absolutely. And I think claim your confidence, the title of your book and your podcast itself is such a a very interesting wordplay in that sense, because, you know, so often when we talk about confidence, we talk about how to become more confident, how to gain confidence. I, I wonder, you know, for you, how did you come up with this title? What does it mean to claim your confidence? What's the difference there? Well, I believe that we're all born with confidence, but we have to claim it. Like we all are born, some people tap into it earlier in their life. They push themselves out of that box time and time again. And as a result, they live a confident life and other people just have it sitting inside of them and they're waiting. It's like waiting for you to claim it, but you have to do it and no one else can do it. And ultimately, I believe once you've claimed your confidence, you'd never go back because you realize what life is like when you're living in your truth and you're living the life you want to live. Claim your confidence as a title came about Naming a book is one of the hardest things you will ever do in your life. I mean, it really is such a difficult thing to name a book. I knew I wanted it to be confidence. We had discussed the most confident woman in the room as you, and Simon and Schuster was really worried about mar marketplace duplicity, where they'd be like, wait, have I read that book? It sounds so much like a book I've read. And as a result of that, I was sort of left to the very last sort of week before it was due. I was like, it has to be confidence. I mean, we were all over the map. I was asking every single person I knew, like, something about confidence. And I was sitting next to a friend of mine at the beach and I said, she's a lawyer and she's just sharp as a tack. Her name's Jennifer Justice. And she's worked with like every major movie star you can imagine. She's just like so sharp. And I said, it's a book on confidence. I need a great title. She's like, it's claim your confidence. That's it. And I was like, that's, you're right. It is it. I love the alliteration. I love everything about it. And that was really how it, it came to be. So it's all Jennifer, but it's so funny how you know when you finally hear it, you're like, that is the name of your that is the name of my book. And, and I do believe it. You have to it. When yeah. you hear it, it it's something. Like uh, um the name of this podcast was a very similar feeling for me. And I was coming up with these titles and they were all pretty terrible. And then Kevin turns to me and says, The linen suit and fast tie. And it, that was it. It was done. <laughs> like we were debate I was debating titles. Like I had ranks, I had I don't even remember half of them. They were all terrible. And Kevin just said it and it's done. It wasn't wasn't a debate, it was done. I was curious about you were talking about how continuing doing the job while you're pregnant, having kids, your stories are obviously changing a lot. And as an auctioneer, you're playing this character that you've created that's so personal to you, unlike if you're an actress where you're playing a totally new character, it's nothing like you or written by someone else. You're writing this character. So did your storytelling style change? Did your character change as you changed? How did how did your kind of auctioneering profile change as you, or was it like, this was me? It doesn't matter what's going on. This is who I am on stage. No, my story totally changed along with me. I mean, I'm such an open book, which since I write books about my life, I guess is a good thing. <laughs> but certainly being on stage, you know, as I said, at the beginning, I was sort of going out there. I didn't look like anyone else out there at that point. I was so young and I had this turning point about, I was in my late twenties 
And I got up on stage one night and I was really sick. I'd been sick the whole day. And I got up on stage and I got up to the podium. And usually when you get up to the podium, you get a big adrenaline rush right before you go on. And that gives you the energy you need, even if you're tired. And frankly, when I was pregnant, it kind of brought me back to normal, but I felt so horrible this day. It kind of brought me back into my normal personality. I have a really dry sense of humor. I always have. And I love cracking jokes because I just like to make people laugh. And I was about to start the first lot, which is the first item which was a dinner at the home of one of Christie's top clients. And it was a woman, they have this beautiful art collection. It was going to be a cocktail party and a dinner at her home. You get to see her art collection. And I remember looking down and realizing it was the same woman I had been seated next to five years earlier when the guy I thought I was going to marry dumped me out of left field. And, you know, it was like one of those conversations where I was kind of like, but I love you. And he was like, I have strong feelings for you too. And I was like, oh, my, my heart is broken. It was like my first big heartbreak. And I had to go to work the next morning. This had happened that night, like late in the evening. And the next morning I went to work and I was running the events department by that point at Christie's. I think I was 26 at the time. And, um, and I sat down at lunch and I just started sobbing. Like we started talking and I was like, I don't know, I'm so sorry. My boyfriend broke it. You know, it was just like such an early 20s. Like I just can't even handle my life right now. And she was so sweet. I mean, she dried my tears. She gave me wine. She gave me chocolate. I mean, she. I was in charge of the lunch and I was a disaster. And that's not my personality at all. But she could not have been sweeter. And so I stood on that stage and instead of standing up there in my formal British art auctioneering persona saying something like, you know, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, we have a cocktail party and a dinner and there are 10 people, you know, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. I went through the bullet points and I said, you know, you're going to have a cocktail party, a dinner for 10 people, a world-class art collection. But more importantly, I sat next to Jennifer when the man I thought I was going to marry dumped me and she nursed me back to health over the course of a meal. So if you are seeing a therapist, skip going to see the therapist, give your money to the charity, head over to Jennifer's house to be patched up in no time. <laughs> and the interesting thing about being on stage when you make people laugh is it becomes really addictive. And if you have a sense of humor and you realize you can make people laugh, it is like, all you want is that next, next laugh. It's like a drug. You're just like, oh my God, the audience is paying attention for the first time in like eight years or six years or what. I mean, I had taken hundreds of really mediocre auctions. And so to elicit that reaction was just so amazing. And then I threw in another joke and they kept the people, there was a man who literally turned his chair around to me, which up until that point, everyone would just turn their chairs away from me. And so that was kind of when I realized that there was something funny about a young 20-year-old, 27-year-old woman being on stage in a job that was not meant for her. And I really leaned into it. You know, it was like stories of things that I had done the night before and why that was a reason you shouldn't do this. Or like, you know, definitely do not hit the senior frog slide in Mexico because that doesn't go well, but that won't be your experience because you're going to be staying at a luxury home. And the more obscure and kind of funny and related to me, the more people laughed. And so I realized that that was just for me going to be my style moving forward. And, you know, you talk about the pregnancies. I mean, I would get on stage and say to the people sitting in the audience, ladies and gentlemen, who is more uncomfortable right now? Is it you <laughs> or is it me? Because I think I'm going to the hospital pretty soon. So you might as well give me all your money so I can get off the stage. I mean, you've never seen results like I got after those auctions. It was unbelievable. But again, you know, even to this day, I mean, I have three kids and half the time I'll be like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, 
um, this is going to be over really quickly, except if you don't bid, in which case I'll stay here all night because my kids are all up right now and I do not want to go home and put them to bed. So I have <laughs> nothing but time, you know? Um, so I'll have people who come up to me year after year and be like, oh my God, how's your baby? You were up here pregnant last year. Like, oh my gosh, how is your five-year-old? You mentioned last year she like had an accident and, you know, and I'm like, did I? I don't remember, but I don't know. People like being part of the journey. You know, they like, then honestly, people just like to laugh, especially at a part of the evening, which they usually dread. Right. So when I come out there and it's like meant to be fun, they are there for the ride. I love the juxtaposition of like, this is a really fancy auction house. This is a well-known historic brand, but I'm going to tell you this kind of fun little weekend story from my life. Uh, And I love that, especially in the early years of your career, where you were a young woman working in this field of a lot of like older people with money and history and heritage and like, this is the stories of from my twenties and you created that brand and that connection. That's sales. You know, it's about the human connection. People always miss that in sales. You know, I teach all these classes. I do all these speeches on sales. And what I always say to people is like, people love funny, interesting people. And if you are funny and interesting, then sales should be your job because at the end of the day, if you can find a human connection with anyone like that, you can sell something to them. Because going back to what you said at the beginning of this podcast, it's about trust, right? To be mindful of your time, we have this closing segment called Suspenders. It works like this. We ask you a fun, random question that's unrelated to anything whatsoever, and you can give us any answer you feel like. Okay. Um, question of the day is, what is the most unique or meaningful gift you've ever received? Ooh, that's a really good one. Well, I'm going to offend about a thousand people right now because I feel like all of my friends are really good gift givers. <laughs> but I just spent a, an entire hour with one of my best friends, Mary Giuliani, who's an amazing gift giver. And when I was writing my first book, she came in and gave me a notebook and said to me, she had read somewhere that this famous author always carried a notebook around so that if something came to her mind, she would immediately scribble it down. So she bought a notebook. And I still have that notebook from my first book where half of the things, including the entire introduction, which I wrote after a spin class in my friend's car, I was like, don't talk to me, inspiration is struck. And I just wrote the whole thing in one sitting and it ended up being the introduction to my book. And it is almost word for word as to what I wrote in that notebook. So things like that, you can't put a price on. That kind of gift giving and that ability to do it is it's something that I do not, I do not have that skill set. So I am such an admirer of people who are good gift givers. Awesome. No, I love that. I love, I love weird and a meaningful gift. That's such a meaningful gift. Um, for me, I'm going to go with a weird one. Um, most unique one. Um, uh, Kevin knows the story, but for a secret Santa, a few years back, Kevin and I were in, I got a, uh, one foot tall doll version of one of my women's. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's so weird. It's somewhere around here. It's like this big. It's like a complete version of him um, in the outfit he always wears. To this day, we have no idea why. Give me like 30 seconds. I don't know who that person is, but I would like their number because that's the kind of gift giving I can get behind. There it is. Yeah. I have it. Two feet. I don't think that's one foot. That looks like a child. Super creepy. 
It's super creepy. Yeah. And uh, just for people listening at home, um, the reason I was able to find it so fast is my apartment's very small. It's not just I had it on hand, but <laughs> I saw it in my closet. It's in the top of my apartment, but yeah. Yeah, it's very weird. Very weird. But anyways, um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. That was a little fun way to end it. Uh, really, really appreciate your time. This was so interesting. No, I loved it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed being on your podcast. I enjoyed listening to your podcast. So looking forward to your continued success. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Claim your confidence out everywhere March 21st. The book, the podcast. Um, yeah, you'll love it. Go buy it. Yeah. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we worked to dissect some of the epic learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week we had the amazing auctioneer Lydia Finnett. You know what I loved about Lydia was she personified authenticity and curiosity, which is two huge parts of storytelling we've explored in this show. Curiosity, especially recently, we've really that's been coming up a lot for us. A lot of different guests have been talking about the power of curiosity. And authenticity has come up since like our very first episodes. And it talks about this idea of you can have role models, you can admire things in other people, but trying to copy that exactly and like use their mannerisms and use their stance and trying to be them, you will always be a discount version. Because authenticity is the key to storytelling. It's the key to connecting. There's something innate about humans where if you're authentic, you can unlock a lot of amazing things. And one of those things you unlock is confidence, right? She would get up there and she wouldn't be like every other man or every other person who was the auctioneer before her. She would be authentically her she would provide her unique opinion because that's what she could be best in the world in, right? And that would allow her to be unique. That would allow her to connect with the audience members and create a story and create a brand around herself. So now when she's up there, she's telling her stories and people recognize her and people see her brand and people connect with her stories. This is who I am right now. I'm pregnant. I'm uncomfortable. I went drinking with the girls last weekend any of these stories that a lot of people say oh i would never say that of course you wouldn't you're not her but she was able to work them into her brand and build a lot of authenticity and a lot of confidence in that storytelling yeah i think lydia's um, career journey especially the process of her finding her own kind of persona as an auctioneer really embodies of course authenticity and it shows the power of stories, right? We, we talked about how the night that everything clicked for her as an auctioneer, the night where she stopped uh, trying to act like all the other auctioneers and show up as herself is when she let off the auction with a story, with a very relatable, very personal story that was totally off the rails from like a more conventional point of view. Uh, but that that worked uh, for that auction, and that has been working for Lydia's career ever since. Of course, we've talked extensively about how storytelling is in fact impactful for auctions, charity auctions in particular. And 
Lydia's story uh, is another great example of the power of storytelling. Yeah, and I mean, this is sales, right? And we've talked to people in sales before and how important storytelling is. And when she's talking about charity auctions and selling things that people necessarily don't want to buy at that price, right? And pitting bidders against each other and connecting with them and telling them this story. It's not just a house in the mountains. It's a weekend getaway. It's this grandiose moment. It's something you it's something you want. You want to be a part of. She is telling the story of this experience. Sales is not about selling a product. It's about making you want the experience. And that can connect to so many different storytelling elements. So I also really love that part of the conversation where she's like, they don't want to pay this price for this item. Yes, it's for charity, but they don't inherently want to pay this price for this item. So you have to build an experience. You have to get them excited about it. It's not the product that they get excited about. It's the power of the storytelling of the auctioneer. And that applies to so many things, whether you are in an interview and you're trying to get them excited about you, any sort of pitch at work or any sort of presentation, you're not just telling them the idea, you're selling them on it. You're convincing them that they need it, right? So I think her being authentic on one hand and being like, this is who I am, connecting with the person, making them trust you, and then using that to create an experience, to create a story around the products. It's just so many different types of storytelling and it goes so hand in hand. So it's about being authentic, creating that trust, creating that connection, being confident in who you are, and then using that to create a story around something, around the product, and convince someone that they want to be a part of it, right? It's it's quite beautiful if you really think about it, and it's really exciting to see, to hear Lydia and how she's used that to sell all these really interesting things through her career. To humanize uh, and make these things more relatable and personal, that's uh, what storytelling is all about. This has been another great episode of the Linux Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe and follow us wherever you listen. Leave us a comment and review to let us know what you're thinking. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at LSPTPod, LinkedIn, Linux Suit and Plastic Tie. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We There's so much amazing content out there, so many different types of storytelling that every minute you spend listening to us is a gift and we really appreciate it and we're here working to make it worthwhile. You dedicated some time to become a better storyteller today and that's amazing and that's awesome and good for you. We love you. Have a good one.